As he sat in his study, a room that one visitor called the focus of political intelligence for the new world, Washington felt the isolation of the man who can see what others cannot or will not. He was a man who had discovered that his moral system was wrong. He had helped to create a new world, but had allowed into it an infection that he feared would eventually destroy it. No other founding father would set his slaves free, and certainly none of them contemplated educating slaves as Washington did. The traditional planter's definition of benevolence presumed holding the slaves in humane but firm bondage, and the schooling that some favored slaves received was intended not to fit them for independence, but to make them more useful to the master. To understand how extraordinary Washington's decision was, one has only to look at the pronouncements of other Southern founding fathers on the subject of slavery. A fellow Virginian, Patrick Henry, wrote of the slaves, Let us treat the unhappy victims with lenity. It is the furthest advance we can make towards justice. Thomas Jefferson scoffed at the very notion of emancipation. To give liberty to, or rather to abandon persons whose habits have been formed in slavery, is like abandoning children. Washington thought otherwise. In his last months, Washington struggled with the paradox that continues to vex us today. How is it that the nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, preserved slavery? The Emancipation Clause stands out from the rest of Washington's will in the unique forcefulness of its language. Elsewhere in it, Washington used standard legal expressions. But the Emancipation Clause rings with the voice of command. It has the iron firmness of a field order. I do hereby expressly forbid the sale of any slave I may die possessed of under any pretense whatsoever. This plainly implies that Washington expected that pretenses would be made and slaves would be sold once he was gone. Furthermore, Washington commanded his family to see that this clause respecting slaves and every part thereof be religiously fulfilled without evasion, neglect, or delay. Nowhere else in the document did he speak with such vehemence. The force of his commands makes it clear that, within his own family, Washington was entirely alone in his thinking about slavery. He expected that the emancipation would come as a shock to his family, and moreover, he expected them to resist it. Washington was positioning himself as the protector of his slaves. Washington's emancipation of his slaves at Mount Vernon has long been dismissed as a mere parting grace note, of little significance except as a mark of his inherent benevolence. But the will hints at a profound moral struggle. Indeed, his decision to free his slaves represented a repudiation of a lifetime of mastery. For his entire life, he had been conditioned to be indifferent to the aspirations and humanity of African Americans. Something happened to change him, and to set him radically apart from his peers and his family. Crossing the barrier into the past is treacherous, but the journey is doubly difficult if one is seeking to understand a man as elusive, as contradictory, but as critically important as George Washington. Washington's home on the Potomac, Mount Vernon, has been a place of pilgrimage since his lifetime.
More than a million people come to Mount Vernon every year, seeking some clue to understanding the character of the distant figure at the core of the American endeavor. Washington designed Mount Vernon himself. The house and every foot of its gardens and grounds present a view of the inner man and the workings of his mind. The house is the perfect mirror of the man. It presents one puzzle after another, and it embodies a basic contradiction. Mount Vernon is not the humble abode of a Democrat, but the manor house of a colonial potentate. Washington lived privately in some grandeur and rural pomp, with a decidedly British flavor, and yet he was the man who refused to be king, who infused the ceremonies of republican government with plainness, who left a legacy of presidential modesty. Even in colonial times, the scope of a planter's ownership could surprise outsiders, as it did a Frenchman who visited a Virginia plantation and remarked, "When I reached his place." I thought I was entering a rather large village, but later was told that all of it belonged to him. Mount Vernon occupies two landscapes and straddles, as far as that is possible, two realms of time. The key to grasping the vision behind Washington's plan is the enormous view that unfolds from the piazza at the rear of the house, with the Potomac River winding to infinity and forests stretching to the horizon, a view not of the past. But of the future, the future Washington envisioned for this house after he was gone was one without slavery. That is the ultimate contradiction of Mount Vernon. The place we see today, beautifully restored, is a place Washington wished to see in part dismantled. Of course, he wished that it would endure, but on a different foundation. There is a spot at Mount Vernon where one can stand today. And see a revealing remnant of the system that Washington rejected. Like so much about slavery, something important was carefully concealed while standing in plain sight because it had been disguised. The majestic greenhouse that Washington designed himself. On one side, the greenhouse faces the upper garden, where Washington liked to take guests for a stroll down paths bordered with boxwood and flower beds. Then and now. Someone walking through the elegant garden and admiring the majestic greenhouse would not know that the wings extending from the sides of the building, providing architectural balance and harmony, were slave barracks. The barracks opened to the rear, and on the garden side there were no doors nor windows large enough to afford a glimpse at the interior. So when Washington's guests strolled past the greenhouse, they saw no sign that these long, handsome brick wings. Housed the plantation slaves. Washington had devised an architecture that rendered slavery invisible, while at the same time weaving slavery into the fabric of his grand design. It was a brilliant, chilling stroke of architectural inspiration. Built of brick and attached to one of the most prominent buildings on the estate, the barracks signify the permanence of slavery. At one time. Washington envisioned that slavery would be part of the fabric of Mount Vernon's future and America's future. The greenhouse is a vestige of the system Washington eventually rejected. He built it, and then he emptied it. In our time, Mount Vernon has felt the reverberations of the thunderclap that struck Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's mountaintop home to the south. When DNA testing of Jefferson's descendants and descendants of his slave Sally Hemings. 
indicated that Jefferson was most likely the father of Hemings's children. To many people, that revelation in 1998 came with as much shock as the discovery of a new continent. If we thought we had fully mapped our world, we were wrong. In the wake of the Jefferson-Hemings revelation, descendants of Washington slaves came forward to ask for their own DNA testing. Their oral tradition, they said, had long held that their black forebear, a slave named West Ford, was the son of George Washington and a slave named Venus. While this information was not exactly new, it had long been known to the Ford descendants and to some scholars, it emerged forcefully into public view at a moment when it seemed that a single new nugget of information could, overnight, completely change our view of a major historical figure. Oral history is very difficult to interpret, and while a story may contain obvious errors, that does not mean that it can be summarily dismissed. In the matter of West Ford, the documentary evidence is ambiguous, but there is virtually no doubt he was kin to the first president. George and Martha Washington had other relatives in their slave community as well. Martha had a half-sister who was black, whose family remained close to the Washington and Custis families at least until the 1850s. The relationship was hardly secret. It was described in detail in a congressional document published in 1871. To consider Washington in connection with slavery challenges the myth of Washington as the perfect secular god. On the one hand, the myth of Washington hides a great deal. His pride, his ambition, his acquisitiveness, some might call it greed, and his willingness to subordinate the weak to his ambition. But on the other hand, the myth does not do him justice, for he transformed himself, shedding his ambition and his self-seeking to bring liberty to a people who were exasperatingly indifferent and reluctant to share sacrifice. It has been said that he was bedeviled by feelings of inadequacy, perhaps resulting from his difficult relationship with his mother and the absence of a father. Certainly he was keenly aware of his lack of education, but against this he threw a relentless drive for attainment and a habit of discipline. In his young adulthood, this drive had no other object beyond his own aggrandizement. When he committed himself to the patriot cause, this drive, this discipline, this single-mindedness helped win the nation its independence. Toward the end of his life, he grappled with the problem of slavery. His wrenching private conflict over race and slavery was a microcosm of the national struggle, one that is not yet over. George Washington is so firmly associated with Mount Vernon that many people assume he was born there. In fact, his birthplace lies some 65 miles downriver in a part of Virginia known as the Northern Neck, a finger of land 52 miles long and 10 miles wide between the Potomac and Rappahannock rivers. At the time of Washington's birth in 1732, the Neck was one of the most important regions in the colony, home to some of its richest and most influential families. But it began to lose population in mid-century as its tobacco fields became depleted. In the 1700s, a traveler of the common sort would doff his hat and bow if he encountered a well-born gentleman on horseback. Such gentlemen stood out not only because of their fine clothes, but because of their peculiar damn-you-get-out-of-the-way gallop. There were many such potentates on the neck, but none could match Robert Carter, 
who bounced along the road in a gilded carriage. The possessor of a thousand slaves and three hundred thousand acres of land, Carter was easily the wealthiest man in Virginia. His power earned him the appellation King Carter. King Carter founded a dynasty numbered among the FFVs, First Families of Virginia. Carter's son Landon became George Washington's political mentor. His children intermarried with other leading families and established Carter outposts across the Tidewater. Alongside the Carters, the other pillar of the Northern Neck in Washington's time was the Lee family. The Lees lived in Stratford Hall, just a few miles east of the Washingtons. Their massive brick mansion, with the look of a fortress, still stands on its magnificent site atop bluffs over the Potomac. Despite its formidable appearance, the house was designed for the lavish, large-scale entertainments of which Virginians were so fond. Parties lasted for days, featuring horse races, boat races, music, dancing, and reckless gambling. The builder of Stratford was Thomas Lee, 1690-1750, whose position as head of the colony's royal council allowed Lee to style himself President of Virginia. With a sharp nose, high forehead, and piercing eyes, he possessed a visage that was both exceedingly handsome, he may have been one of the few men of the 18th century who actually looked good wearing the flowing wig of high office, and unbearably proud. In 1744, Lee journeyed from Stratford to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to negotiate with the Iroquois for the purchase of an enormous inland empire, territory that would form the future states of Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, and part of Minnesota, all for about $400 in cash and gifts. With a group of other Virginians, Lee founded the Ohio Company to settle and exploit this tract. Thereafter, Ohio Valley land speculation became the dream and the bane of Virginians, including George Washington. His half-brother Lawrence served as president of the Ohio Company, and as a Virginia militia officer, young George went into the wilderness to bully the French into leaving the territory that Lee had purchased and ended up starting the French and Indian War. Two of Thomas Lee's sons signed the Declaration of Independence, the only brothers to do so. For generations, the Lees did business with the Washingtons, competed with them for land, and intermarried with them. The Lee-Washington relationship is fraught with historical ironies. During the Revolution, Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee caught George Washington's eye with a dashing victory over British forces in New Jersey. The two became close friends, and Henry Lee delivered the famous eulogy of Washington before Congress. First in war, first in peace, 